can hear me? Okay, it's really good uh, to see all of you this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, truly we pray that you'll give us eyes to understand the meaning of this passage, that will speak to our hearts, and that will change our lives. We pray that uh, it will be a passage which I'm faithful with as I handle it and I, and I preach it, and I really pray that for all of us here, it will make a difference in our lives. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now this morning, I'd like to ask you, how is your faith? How would you describe your faith? Uh, if you were to describe your faith, would you say that your faith is strong or would you say that your, your faith is weak? Uh, would you say that it's rock solid or that it's soft and fragile and feeble? And would you say maybe your faith is getting stronger or do you think perhaps it's getting weaker and more feeble? Now the reason I ask this question is because last week I, uh, I went to, to a dinner and I sat with a, a relative of mine, actually he was my nephew, and I was just talking to him, and he had grown up in a Christian environment. He had gone to Christian school. His parents were nominally Christian. And plus, he has a Christian uncle, me, right? And so I asked him, and then I said, you know, how is your faith? How are you going in your Christian life? And he said to me, and this is quite a profound answer, I thought, I know that Jesus is real, but my faith is weak. And that was a really interesting answer. You know, I was thinking about it for quite a while. I said, I know that Jesus is real, but my faith is weak. Now, I wonder whether we can sympathize with that sort of statement. You know, that, that we know the facts about Jesus, but our faith may be weak. And I think that looking at this passage, it sort of answers that, that the dilemma of that question about knowing the facts about Jesus and not having a strong faith. Because it's really a study on faith and the different responses that people have to Jesus. Now today I want to begin not with uh, the chapter 7 question, uh, passage, I want to start with chapter 8 and look at chapter 8 in particular. And I want to look at the feeding of the 4,000. Now if you don't have a Bible, uh, put up your hands because we've got lots of Bibles left over in the back. Anybody needs one? You need one for, to understand the passage. So anybody need a Bible? Don't be shy. Put up your hands. Okay. Now anyway, we begin with uh, the passage in chapter 8 with the feeding of the 4,000. Now for those of you who've been going to Bible study, for those of you who have been following our sermon series, you would notice as we read the feeding of the 4,000 that it was very similar to another feeding, isn't it? It was very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, there are some people who, uh, you know, especially opponents or critics of the Bible or Christianity, who say, look, this, is, uh, this, this feeding is actually the same feeding, right? It's the same, you know, there are lots of people, it's a remote place, there's bread, there's fish, and again, Jesus feeds all these people. And I think it, it presents to us a very, very important question. Whether the Bible is reliable or not. Because some of these people say, you know, look at how stupid the writers of the Bible are. Here we are, this Mark has an IQ of a kindergarten student, right? In eight chapters, he gets the same feeding and repeats it twice. It's a variation of the same feeding. So here, as we look at chapter 8, the first question that I want to answer is, is this a real feeding? Is it something that's a fable, a legend, or a myth? And I think that we should never be afraid of the difficult questions that people present to us when we read the Bible because most importantly, it forces us to look long and hard at the passage. And uh, as I was taught in Bible college, we keep reading and looking at the passage until we really understand it. And I think that if you look at this passage, if you look really deep into the passage and you know, give it its due respect, you'll see that there are a lot of differences between this feeding 
the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, that really there are two very distinct and separate feedings that Mark didn't make a mistake that Jesus actually fed two groups of people. Now, the beginning is very different of the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. You see, if you look up here on this slide, okay, Jesus, uh, when he feeds the 5,000, had compassion on the crowd. Now, why did he have compassion on the crowd? He had compassion on the crowd because they were sheep without a shepherd. You remember that? It was just two weeks ago, isn't it? And what did he do? He taught them. He fed them because of their spiritual need. I hope you all remember that two weeks ago. But here in the feeding of the 4,000, you'll see that it's very different. They've been there for three days and they are very hungry. And Jesus has compassion on them. But his compassion is for their very real physical needs. Right? They're hungry, so he goes on to feed them. So you can see the beginning of the, the feeding of the 5,000 is very different from the feeding of the 4,000. But not only is the beginning very different, the ending is very different. Uh, okay, so next slide. Okay, I've summarized it for you. It's all there, right? Okay, next slide. Because at the end of the feeding of the 4,000, what happens to Jesus? He gets in the boat of his disciples. You can see it there in the passage. Verse 10, right? Uh, he got into the boat of his disciples and went to the region of Dalmatia, isn't it? Whereas at the ending of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Jesus sends the disciples off on the boat. He goes off to the mountain to pray and then later he walks on the sea. Do you remember that? So the beginning is different, the ending is different. But I think there's one very serious difference uh, that is not so apparent to us in the English. So turn with me to chapter 8, verse 19 to 20. And I, I think it's really important and it will blow your mind, right? So you look at verse 19 to 20. And this is what it says. It says, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. So you, you know, you're saying to me, yeah, Andrew, I see that. It looks exactly the same, right? Okay. But actually, when you look at the original language in the Greek, the basketfuls in verse 19 is a different word to the basketfuls in verse 20. Because in verse 19, the word that he uses for baskets is the Jewish baskets. These are small baskets, right? Okay. Whereas in verse 20, the baskets that he's talking about are, are Gentile baskets, these big baskets. In fact, uh, the, the word there, baskets, in verse 20, is the same word which is used in the book of Acts where Paul was lowered from the wall in a basket. Okay, so here's the slide, right? In Acts chapter uh, uh, 9, verse 23, the Jews wanted to kill Paul, but Saul learned of their plan day and night. They kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket. This is the same word in verse 20. So it's a big basket through the opening in the wall. So I've just got this picture for you. Okay, so it's a big basket that uh, is talked about here in the second feeding. So what happens is, as we look into the passage, we really understand the passage, we see that there's a difference between the two feedings. In the first feeding, we thought, well, you know, Jesus, there were 12 basketfuls left. But in the second feeding, there were only seven. You see, Jesus had learned not to over-cater so much. 
So now he was reducing the amount of baskets. But actually, in the second uh, feeding, he probably had more because the baskets were much bigger. So as we really look in the passage, instead of just taking a surface reading, instead of creating doubt in our mind that the Bible is unreliable, unrestorical, that it's unfaithful, it actually shows us what a careful historian Mark is, that he's actually you know, painstakingly tell, telling the reader that there's a difference between the, the Jewish baskets in the first feeding and the Gentile baskets in the second feeding. And I think that the similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000 shouldn't make us ask the question, is the Bible real or false? Or is it historical or not? Because the Bible is real and is historical. And Jesus did feed twice. But the question that it makes me ask anyway is, how does verse 4 come about? How does verse 4 come about that the disciples, when they are asked by Jesus to feed the crowd, they ask Jesus in uh, verse 4, look at what it says there. But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Now, as I was reading the passage, and I was hoping that maybe when you read the passage, don't you think this is a really weird response by the disciples? I mean, think about it, right? You're one of the disciples. And it's a remote place. Lots of hungry people. You've got bread, and you've got fish, and you've got Jesus, and Jesus says, feed these people. Wouldn't you sort of say, guys, ah, this looks really familiar, right? I'm sure I've been in this situation once before. Right? There's a sense of deja vu, isn't it? I mean, haven't we been here before? So why is it, in verse 4, the disciples say, where are we going to get enough food to feed these people? Isn't it because somehow they've forgotten what Jesus has done in the past? In fact, one commentator uh, rejects verse 4 and he said, verse 4 is impossible. In his own words, he says, it's a stupid repetition of the question which is psychologically impossible. Right, psychologically impossible they could ask this question. Because having experienced the feeding of the 5,000, how can they now say to Jesus, how are we going to feed these people? Because they would have seen how Jesus fed the 5,000 the first time. But I think that uh, it's not psychologically impossible. I think maybe this commentator has spent too long in the ivory towers of academia. He's not mixed enough with ordinary Christians, right? Because mixing around ordinary Christians, the reality is that People of faith often forget the reality of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and the teachings of Jesus. I'm sure you've experienced it before. You know, maybe you have a friend, maybe a Christian friend or a relative or someone who's not even a Christian and they are having a time of dire need. Maybe they're in hospital. Uh, maybe there are some serious difficulty. Maybe it's the night before the exam which they haven't studied for, right? And then you pray for them and then they ask you to pray and you, you, you all pray together and then suddenly that serious situation is resolved. Uh, their ill health has become good health. Their financial situation has become resolved. Maybe they did well in their exams. It only takes a few days or a few weeks before the person says, well, you know, thanks for praying but maybe God wasn't helping me that day. Maybe it was because I was just a really clever person. Or maybe because my constitution was really strong. Or maybe because my mind was really sharp. Or maybe there are other times too where, uh, you know, we've sat in Bible studies and we learn uh, Bible studies about Jesus, you know, and we teach a newcomer. 
or a young Christian and you say, you are only saved because Jesus died for you on the cross. Okay? Okay, repeat after me. You're only saved because Jesus died for you on the cross. And then a few weeks later, you ask them, how are you saved? And the guy goes, uh, or the girl goes, uh, I'm saved because I'm a good person. Right? Isn't that because they've forgotten what they've actually learned from the Bible? And I think that many commentators are right, that if you look at chapter 8, if you compare chapter 8 with what has happened before, in chapter 1 to 6, there is a repetition of the sequence of Acts. Jesus feeds the 4,000, just as he fed the 5,000. Jesus heals and, and you know, the blind person and does all these miracles. Jesus repeats his teaching. Why does he do that? Why does he bother to repeat all these things over and over again? Because there is forgetfulness among the disciples. And I think that that is one thing that we must watch for in ourselves as well. It shows the identity of Jesus in this passage, but it also shows the forgetfulness of the disciples. And I think that for you, for me, we are very easy. Uh, we are very natural. It's very natural for us to forget the things of God, isn't it? It's very easy for us to remember the score of your EPL Barclays Leap uh, soccer team, what they scored the night before, isn't it? It's very easy for us to remember the price of that dress or the purse that we want to buy. It's very easy for us to remember the plot of that movie we saw last week. But then if I were to ask you, do you remember what you learned in Bible study this week? Do you remember? If I asked you, if, uh, you know, when you read your Bible last at quiet time, do you remember what you, le- you read? Or maybe the sermon last week, do you remember what you learned? See, we, ca- we can't remember, isn't it? Because there's a natural tendency for us to forget. And I think that's what we see here with the disciples, that tendency to forget. Uh, I was reading this book uh, called Not By Bread Alone, and he says that we live in God-forgetting communities. That means we are naturally inclined to forget God. And it's not in this passage, but he says that we should keep praying to God that we will not have a mind which keeps forgetting the truths about Jesus and the truths about God. And we should keep coming back to the Word to keep reminding us of the truth of what God has done and who Jesus is. Now this first section is all about the power and identity of Jesus and the forgetfulness of these disciples. Then the second section, if you look with me, it's a very short section. It's only verse 11 to verse 13. Is, is, is a response of Jesus to the Pharisees. In verse 11, the Pharisees, they come and they begin to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Now the word question here in verse 11 is a very neutral word, right? It just basically means to ask, to inquire, to examine. But remember, we always got to read the Bible in context, isn't it? Context is the most important thing in reading the Bible. And we know that in the past, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' time were very antagonistic to Jesus. They were not his friends. They were not his followers. They were coming not to question him because they sincerely and genuinely wanted to know whether Jesus was the Christ or was from God. They wanted to question him in an antagonistic way, in a judgmental way. So don't forget in chapter 3, right, if you see up here, in chapter 3, remember the Pharisees, after Jesus had uh, restored the man's hand on the Sabbath, in verse 6, 
they went out to begin to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And then later on in chapter 3, the teachers of the law said that the, the miracles that Jesus did came not from God, but from Satan himself, from Beelzebub. So, when we read that they came to question Jesus, already we're suspicious. They do not here to question him in a good way, but in a bad way. And it goes on to say that they came to test him, isn't it? To test him. And basically, they, you know, they're, they're sitting in judgment of Jesus. It's a bit like, a, you know, when you read this word, test him, it's a bit like, you know, having a pet dog. You know, you're saying to the dog, okay, can you sit? Can you roll over? Can you play dead? Can you jump over this hoop? Can you jump through this, uh, through this uh, um, what do you call it, hoop of fire? Right? Or maybe Jesus is like a job applicant, you know. Jesus, can you just sit down for a couple of interviews? We want to see whether you really qualify for this position. Or maybe Jesus, you want to join our club? Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll be happy for you to join our club, but you just need a couple of references, okay? And I think that's why Jesus, in verse 12, he sighs deeply, isn't it? Because Jesus, since chapter 3 to chapter 8, has done many, many miracles. Only a few of which are recorded for us in the Bible, in the book of Mark for us. We read, he fed the 5,000 after chapter 3. He raised Jairus' daughter. He walked on water. So, it must be so frustrating for Jesus to have, again, these Pharisees come and say, show us a sign, Jesus. Any sign will do. Just show us a sign. When Jesus has been doing all these miracles since chapter 3 to now. Now, if you look at verse 12, if you turn back to, to verse 12, it says, he sighed deeply, right? Now, the sighing deeply here is very different from the sighing of chapter 3, verse 34. Sorry, chapter 7, verse 34. See, chapter 7, verse 34, it should be on the same page. It is for mine anyway. Your Bibles. It says there that Jesus had a deep sigh when he healed the deaf, mute man. You see that? Chapter 7, verse 34. But here, Jesus sigh his his sigh when he's challenged by the Pharisees is not a sigh of compassion, but it's a sigh of, I think it's anger and frustration. It, it reminds me of uh, my Chinese teacher. Uh, she was trying to teach me Chinese when I was very young, right? It's like, you know, she's always sighing. Hi, yeah, Andrew. Hi, Bu Ming Bai. It's that frustration that, you know, Ah, you can't understand. Why can't you understand? I've done so much to teach you. You know, you've read this, you've done this, and all the stuff. You still can't understand. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's sighing with great frustration. And he makes this oath, isn't it? He says, uh, he says there, he says, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I'll tell you the truth. No sign will be given it. And it's like an oath, right? He says, You want a sign? I'll give you a sign over my dead body. Okay? Like, he says, You want a sign? May God. Punish me if I ever give you a sign. That's what he's saying. You see, Jesus, as we've seen so far, will give miracles to people when they come in need and humility and desperation, but he will not come and give the sign when these people are sitting over them. Sitting over Jesus, I mean. Uh, he's sitting over Jesus in cynicism and judgmentalism and distrust and accusation. But what I want you to read, the interesting thing is, in verse 12, Notice what it says there in verse 12. He doesn't say, why do you Pharisees ask for miraculous signs? In verse 12. He doesn't say, why do you religious teachers 
ask for miraculous signs. Look at verse 12. He says, why does this generation ask for miraculous signs? Isn't that an interesting thing? And I think why he's saying that is because the Pharisees represent the attitude of the generation. A generation which is hardened and judgmental and seeks to judge Jesus and ask Jesus to keep producing again and again these miracles and signs. Now I wonder for our generation in Singapore, whether we have the same tendencies, whether people have a great tendency to want to keep seeing signs and wonders so that their faith may be buttressed and built up. I know of my friend when I was, um, when I was working in a, in a computer company, he was going to one of these churches and they kept having all these healing and all these miracle sessions. And he kept asking me to come along and I kept saying no. And I wonder, I said, why do you want me to keep coming to these things? I'm already a Christian, right? Why do you want me to come and see these miraculous things happening or, or, or healing sessions? And he said, because you know you'll be blessed and your faith will be strengthened. But I don't think that actually pleases Jesus. I think it displeases Jesus. It is a sign of, of unbelief to keep asking for signs rather than a sign of faith, I think. What is required is not more miracles, what is required is for us to read the book of Mark more. Because Jesus basically says, if it's not the feeding of the 5,000 enough to prove who I am for your faith, it's not the feeding of the 4,000 enough for your faith, it's not the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead enough for your faith, does every week at church, do, does Jesus have to show up to make someone's leg longer or heal someone's backache or you know, get someone's migraine to go away? No, I don't think so, isn't it? Jesus says that frustrates him, that irritates him, that every week a sign is required so that people's faith may be strong. Not the only signs he's given are the signs that he's given in the Gospels. And that should be enough for us as Christians. It's the wrong attitude to keep wanting more and more signs. Now as we read uh, chapter um, 7 and 8, I can't help but uh, compare the faith of the Syrophoenician woman to the faith of the Pharisees. But as you were reading it, did you notice how different the faith of the Syrophoenician woman was to the unbelief of the Pharisees? So, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, if you come back to chapter 7, verse 24, right? chapter 7, verse 24, it says that she was from Tyre. And Jesus had probably gone with his disciples there for a holiday or a break or a teaching Time. You know, it's like how Singaporeans go to Malaysia or Phuket for a break. Well, he went to Tyre, alright? And uh, he meets a woman there and she's from Syro-Phoenicia. That's why she's the Syro-Phoenician woman. So that means she's culturally a Greek, she's born a Greek, she speaks Greek, she is mentally a Greek, everything Greek, okay? Anyway, she comes to Jesus and she, she falls at his feet and begs him to heal her daughter who has a demon. Now, Jesus gives a very cryptic answer and I think for many people they find this answer is a very rude answer in verse 27. Because here this woman comes to Jesus begging him to save her daughter. So what does Jesus say? First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. That's a really rude answer. Can you imagine you have a daughter your daughter's sick, you go to Jesus, 
We're all Chinese here, right? None of us are Jews, so it's okay. Right, so we go to Jesus and we're begging him, please, Jesus, help, help me with my daughter. And Jesus says, uh, wait, you know, wait a second. First, let the children eat what they want. For it's not right to take the children's bread and give to the dogs. Now, how would you react? Now, she could have reacted in a few ways, right? It's a bit like uh, how Singaporeans react to bad service. Okay, you get bad service, you're rude back, or maybe you leave and you never come back again. Maybe you write to the forum section of the newspaper, right? But notice that she is not insulted by Jesus. She's not insulted at all. In fact, if you read her reply, she's very humble, isn't it? In fact, if you, if you translate her reply, she basically says, okay, you say I'm a dog, right? But I accept that I'm a dog. I accept that I'm a dog, but you are still my master, and as my master... Could you please give me some of the crumbs? What a humble attitude to Jesus that is. And it's so different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees came to Jesus in a position of judgmentalism and criticism. Said, Jesus, show us that you are from God. But this woman comes from the other direction. She comes from a, from, from a direction of saying, I've got no merit. I've got no right for your help. I've got, I only depend on your grace. Please help me. All I want is crumbs. See, what she realized, and and notice she has ears that can hear and eyes that can see, isn't it? Because Jesus is sort of saying a mini parable here. And she recognizes what Jesus is saying. She recognizes that Jesus is saying that he is here either to look after the disciples to rest so that they can go back to minister to Israel or he's here just to teach the disciples who are the children. And therefore, I don't have time to go around, uh, you know, Uh, healing people and teaching people because my first priority is to Israel and the disciples. But notice how she's willing to put herself below the disciples and Israel say, okay, fine, I'm not as important as the disciples, I'm not as important as the, the Israel, but I'm still worthy of your help. Please help me. What a different attitude it is from the Pharisees. And it pleases Jesus because Jesus, in verse Uh, 29, actually gives her what she's looking for, isn't it? She says, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. See, here it is, is an exercise of faith, which Jesus has answered. In fact, in the book of Matthew, chapter 15, it records the woman's reply and says, but then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Right, your request is granted and the daughter was healed at that very hour. You see, it's such a difference from the Pharisees who come wanting signs and proof and sitting over Jesus to this woman who comes with great faith and is willing to come to Jesus even though she sees that she has no standing before him. Now, as we read this passage, How do we approach Jesus? Do we approach Jesus with this persistent, humble faith of the Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile woman? Or do we come to Jesus, sitting over him and say, you know, Jesus, prove to me that you really love me. Prove to me that you're God. Do these things for me. Show me these signs. Show me these wonders so that I will believe. Or do we just come to Jesus and we say, well, you know, Jesus, we trust in you. We have faith in you. You see, think of this woman. She was not like the Pharisees. She did not have all the advantages 
of seeing all the miracles that Jesus had done. They did, he, she did not have the advantage of reading the Old Testament and being in a covenant relationship with God, a covenant community with God. But yet she had such great faith in Jesus. So who are we? Are we like the Pharisees or are we, are we like this woman? Because if we are like the Pharisees and we are judgmental and critical of Jesus and we keep asking Jesus to keep proving himself to us, then that's displeasing to Jesus. And that's why in the last section from verse 14 onwards of chapter 8, he teaches the disciples the danger of the Pharisees' attitude. And actually, if you, uh, if you were to um, look at verse 14 onwards as a situation comedy, it would make quite a funny and amusing episode, I think. Because if you think of the picture, right, the disciples go on this boat, and I can't imagine it's a very big boat. It's just a small boat, right? But you can imagine all the disciples in one corner, you know, having discussions, and then Jesus is sitting on the other side, right? And then all these uh, disciples, they're all standing, uh, 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 hey, Pete, did you bring the bread? Oh, you left the bread. Oh, oh, you forgot. How can you say you forgot? Oh, no, James, did you bring the other stuff? I told you to. No, you didn't bring it. Oh, man, the boss is going to be really angry, right? And then... Jesus is on the other side. He can overhear what they're saying. And then Jesus says to them, He says, in verse 17, He says, Why are you talking about having... Oh, sorry, no, verse, uh, verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And, and, and you know, you can sort of imagine that, okay, the disciples now go, okay, Jesus said, you know, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. What is he talking about, guys? Guys, let's, let's get together. Okay, let's work out what Jesus is saying. you have any idea? No? Any suggestions? Alright. Is, is, is it because he's angry about the bread, right? Yeah, he's not happy about the bread. Told you to bring the bread. Didn't listen to me. You see, they just don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And then Jesus goes on to try to explain to them exactly what he's talking about. And you can, you know, as you read the passage, you can feel the frustration of Jesus coming off the page of the Bible, right? You can feel the dripping off the pages of the Bible. He says, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He answered them, do you still not understand? You know, you can feel the frustration of Jesus. Now what Jesus was trying to say about the, the yeast, is, is quite a straightforward uh, one-to-one uh, comparison, right? So basically, for those of you who are not cooks, and I'm not cooked as well, so uh, this is helpful for me. Um, you have dough. You know, dough is like the pizza stuff, you know, you roll it up, it's all flat. But you notice what happens when you make a pizza? It stays flat, right? I don't see any flat pizzas go up. Except maybe the pizza hut one is a bit thicker, right? Maybe they put a bit dough with that. But anyway, you put this yeast in the flour, and then you roll it, and you mix it all up, and you just need a, bit of, a little bit of yeast, and you mix it all up. And then after you mix it up, and you bake it, then it becomes, you know, it, it becomes full, or, or I don't know what the exact culinary term is, but uh, puffed up, right? Okay, and what he's basically saying, Jesus is saying, is very simple, the next slide, it's like, don't let the attitude of the Pharisees, and Herod as well, Herod was against Jesus, to come in to influence 
beware of that. Don't let, as, as people of God, as disciples, and, you know, children of faith, don't let this yeast of the Pharisee come and infect your fellowship, your community, your faith and your belief. So, and, and basically, what is the yeast? The yeast of judgmentalism. The yeast of, of being blind, and closing your ears and eyes to what Jesus is doing. The yeast of, of disbelief, of uh, having a critical spirit. Because that's very damaging to believers. And I think that it is very important for the disciples to hear this because I think that they are actually very close to the Pharisees in some way. See, you think of a spectrum, right? You know what a spectrum is? So you've got a line here. On one side, you've got total unbelief. And on the other side, you have total faith. Now, I think the Pharisees are very, I mean, they're almost like on, the, on this side, total unbelief. And the Syrophoenician woman, where is she? I think she'll be very close to the side of total belief, total faith. But where, where are the disciples? Are they closer to the Syrophoenician woman? Or are they closer to the Pharisees? Well, based on the answers they give Jesus here, they seem to be much closer to the Pharisees, isn't it? Because they can't understand what Jesus has been doing. They don't see the significance of what Jesus is doing. They don't understand you know, what implication there is or what Jesus has been doing. And that's why Jesus warns them. He says, Are your hearts hardened? In verse 17. Are your hearts hardened? And this is a word which is used for non-believers. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. In the parable of the sower, the heart which is hard is the first soil. The, 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 you know, the heart which is like the rocky, uh, which is the path where the seed cannot take root. And Jesus says, Are you like that? Are you like a non-believer? Because ultimately, that is the danger, the danger that the Pharisees present. If you have a judgmental, critical spirit to Jesus, not one of faith, then your hearts are hardened. You are outside the kingdom. Now, I want you to pay attention to verse 19, to verse 20. And something very interesting happens here, isn't it? Because Jesus asked two questions, and the disciples answer the two questions. And do they get the answers right? Yes, isn't it? They get 100%. Because how many basketfuls were left after the feeding of the 5,000? Seven. How many basketfuls were left? Oh, sorry, 12, sorry. I got it wrong. Okay, 12. How many, feedings, how many baskets were left after the feeding of the 4,000? There were seven. So they get 100% in terms of answering the questions. But they get 0% in terms of understanding. They fail. They get this big red cross in terms of understanding. See, that's why Jesus says, do you still not understand? Jesus doesn't do the miracles for fun. He doesn't do it because he's doing magic. He's not like David Blaine or David Copperfield performing at the casino. Right? He's just doing it for entertainment. No, the miracles come because they point to the identity and the authority of Jesus. And I think that's the problem with the disciples. They understand the facts, but they don't understand what it means, the response that it requires, the response of faith. And I think that's the same for us, isn't it? It's like for, for many people, people know the facts about Jesus, but they don't respond in faith. See, Jesus is not interested in us knowing the facts. He, he's interested in our faith. The facts of Jesus must lead to faith. Now, I remember my, uh, my sister went to a Christian school when she was growing up. 
and as a part of her Christian education then, she had to study, I think, one of the Gospels, and I think the Book of Acts. If I'm not mistaken, she got 92%. Right? My sister was a good student. But, so what? The facts that she could under- explain in, in, the, in the test did not translate into faith. She was not a Christian at that point in time, even though she could get 92% on the test on the Gospel and on the Book of Acts. See, Jesus is not impressed if you can recite the Apostles' Creed or you know, you know all the facts about what happened, but he's interested only if those facts translate itself into faith. See, I remember when I said right at the very beginning of today's sermon, my relative who said, I know that Jesus is true, Oh, Jesus is real. He said, I know Jesus is real, but my faith is weak. Why is that? It cannot be, isn't it? If you know that Jesus is real and you know the facts about Jesus, then those implications must point you to a strong faith in Jesus. If you knew that Jesus fed 5,000 and there were 12 baskets left and you knew that he fed 4,000 and there were 7 baskets left, It must mean something for your life. It must mean something for your faith. There was a Christian scholar called G.K. Chesterton. And he said, Christianity cannot both be true and unimportant. Right? Christianity cannot both be true and unimportant. If Jesus is true and he has done all these things, then he cannot be unimportant in our lives and unimportant in our faith. Right? We, we, we must see with spiritual eyes. We have, must have hearts to understand what it means that Jesus has done all these things. That it must point the way to a strong faith in Jesus. A faith that remembers and understands what Jesus has done. And I think that's so important for many of us, maybe for, for those of you who've gone to church, through youth group, the younger people, for those of you who've gone through children's church, that maybe if you know the facts about Jesus, but you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, then there's something wrong, isn't it? There's something wrong because Jesus is not interested in your knowledge of facts, but Jesus is interested in your faith. So, in closing, do you believe that Jesus fed 5,000 with just a little bit of bread, with five pieces of bread and two fish? If you say yes, do you believe that Jesus fed 4,000 with just a little bread and some fish? 4,000 men, right? There's many other women and children as well. Do you believe that Jesus made the paralyzed man walk? Do you believe that he forgave his sins? Do you believe that Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus walked on water? Do you believe that he made the deaf hear? Do you believe that he made the mute speak? Do you believe that he made the lame walk? Do you believe that he made the blind see? If that doesn't create in you a great and powerful faith in Jesus, then Jesus' words to to us are the same that he gave to his disciples in verse 21. Because Jesus said to them, Do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? Because the facts of Jesus must lead to a strong and humble and rock-solid faith in Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that reading your word in the book of Mark, as we've been doing over the last few weeks, is not just for knowledge, it's just not for intellectual stimulation, 
it is not just for coming together and uh, opening a Bible for the sake of it, but rather it must create in us a strong faith, a faith which is based on what Jesus has done and not signs and wonders of today and not uh, a hankering after miracles. Dear Father, help us to really not let our study of Mark just wash over us and leave us unchanged, but rather let us be transformed through your Holy Spirit, helping us to remember what Jesus has done and seeing the implications of it, seeing the identity of Jesus as your Son and seeing his authority as God, that we must have strong faith in Jesus and that when times are tough, when things get rough, that we will not be weak in our faith, but we can remember who Jesus is and what he is to us and therefore never waver in our faith. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.